Welcome to Tech Talk with Optimal Rx. My name is Kristen Gilmore. I'm here with Julianne Grant, and we are ready to talk herbal medicine. Kristen and I are both practicing naturopaths with 25 years experience between us. As big herb nerds, we are excited to explore all things phytotherapy and health with you. Hello and welcome to today's podcast, where I'll be interviewing Julianne Grant on her recent webinar with Optimal RX, discussing phytomedicines for microbiota modulation. Now, a little bit about Julianne. She is an experienced Melbourne-based naturopathic practitioner who has practiced in complementary medicine for 20 years. Her extensive career has included working with patients within a private clinical setting, within hospitals, with sporting groups, with individual athletes, and within corporate settings. Julianne has a special interest in the management of chronic disease, namely autoimmune conditions, inflammatory conditions such as chronic inflammatory response syndrome, or SIRS, and biotoxin illness, and also chronic infections. Alongside her practice, Julianne is also a researcher, technical writer, presenter, and educator for our favorite Australian herbal medicine company, Optimal RX. And Julianne is really passionate about education, both of her clients and of the naturopathic profession. And I can certainly attest that she invests a great deal of time researching and implementing advances in natural medicine. Julianne has a keen interest in herbal medicine and is a member of the Naturopaths and Herbalists Association of Australia, or NHAA. So thank you for being here, Julianne, and welcome to the other side of the podcast interview. This is a nice place to sit. Thanks, Kristen. <laughs> no worries. Now, firstly, I just want to say that I absolutely loved your webinar. I, I was sure I would, but I was especially impressed not only with your excellent pronunciation of the trickiest <laughs> Latin words, but with your really in-depth uh, practical discussion regarding all aspects of our microbiota and particularly in regard to how it impacts not only our health, but the scope of our practice. So thank you for providing us with a neat little package really of interesting and essential information for practitioners, especially herbalists, to better support all of our patients. Yeah, thanks. It was a joy to compile, although I wish I had two years to research this topic. <laughs> I was thinking about it before, thinking that really this research isn't just done in a month or two, is it? Is an ongoing research assignment, really. Um, so it was, it was a joy to put together, yeah. And I'm sure there'll be a lot more um, opportunities in the future, hopefully, to continually update this, uh, this sort of ever-going ever um, series of, of papers and insights and findings. And, you know, like I said, even your webinar was very in-depth. And when we are talking about phytomedicines and the microbiome, this is such a huge topic, like you've said. So... What was it that really made you want to delve in um, into the research and present on this topic? Yeah, well, as you mentioned um, in my bio, thank you for that. Uh, I do I do tend to specialise if that's if that's how we want to say it, but I do tend to treat people with immune dysregulation um, of all sorts, and it is a passion of mine through from uh, personal experience, etc. But the microbiome and micro and digestion power, digestive power, sorry, 
all of the things related to the gastrointestinal tract is obviously one of the key areas of our treatment and our, our maintenance post post acute flares or anything along the lines of that so you know i have been interested like many practitioners in the microbiome for a very long time and the opportunity came up i guess with our research for optimal rx over the last maybe five or so years to delve more into infections to its effect on the immune system to localize to systemic infections and then everything in between that impacts the immune system um, so when i was thinking about education for this year i was sort of really wanting to dive into the microbiome and how our herbal medicines actually can impact the microbiome, but then also how the microbiome can impact our herbal medicine. And we're getting on a practitioner level, we are having more practitioners test stools, stool samples more regularly. Um, mm -hmm. Prices are coming down in certain stool tests. So our patients are happier to have them done. And we've also been um, finding a lot of questions and perhaps um, misunderstanding or a lack of clarification of when to use what type of herbal medicine and what impact that has on the microbiota. We all brought up in this, you know, um, seed, weed and feed kind of thing or weed, seed, feed. I always forget which, because I don't abide by those rules, um, which turns it in. So I just sort of wanted to really delve into it and find, well, what, sh what are our tools? What should we be doing with the microbiome on a herbal medicine level and also diet and lifestyle level? Uh, what impacts it? what's negative, what's positive, when do I use what, what's a pathogenic uh, infection versus lack of diversity. Like I wanted to delve into that and I wanted to be able to package that for practitioners um, and to hopefully clarify some perhaps misconceptions around what is termed an antimicrobial and what's termed a, you know, selective or non-selective antimicrobial. So that presented this a little bit over an hour <laughs> lecture <laughs> for all of our practitioners. Well, you certainly answered a lot of questions in your webinar um, and I will, I guess, probably prod you a little bit during the podcast to, to cover some of that now, but um, you answered a lot of questions that I think practitioners have been wondering about and asking about and looking into the research um, around because, you know, with the gut microbiome, it's just so fascinating and, you know, we really do kind of only know what the research is is telling us which like we sort of were saying earlier it's kind of in its infancy and and you know when we consider the amount of species that make up the microbiota i think in your webinar you said there are over a thousand bacterial species um mm. so i guess just to begin with can you briefly outline for us some of the factors that do support the development of a healthy microbiome as well as some of the factors on the other side of the coin that may have a negative impact on our microbiota. Yeah, so I touch on this in the webinar and I really I think this is probably a lecture in itself as well, um, but just as a the, the major factors that we come across when we're talking about development of a microbiome, so we're talking about you know preconception, conception and neonate and I'll just talk mainly about neonate and stuff, but the the mode of delivery is important. So the mode of delivery or birth is important for the neonates microbiome. So a vaginal delivery is seen as being a beneficial factor in development of the microbiome. Being the babe being delivered at term is also seen as a beneficial um, factor. Breastfeeding and an exposure to wide variety of microorganisms in the early years or early days really too and early years is seen as, as beneficial factors promote a healthy microbiome uh, the flip side to that 
when there's conception and birth and the early years and during neonate is that I guess there's some negative impacts such as cesarean section birth. Um, and I just want to touch on that because these days, you know, we, as, as a mum myself and as someone who needed to have an emergency cesarean, you can kind of get caught up in the negativity around that or the worry and the fear around what that might do to your babe's um, microbiome. Us naturopaths know too much going into birth and things, don't we? <laughs> but really there's things we can do to promote a healthy microbiome right from birth if we have a cesarean section, such as vaginal swabs, et cetera. So, you know, I encourage women to have a chat with their obstetricians um, to see what, what they can do to promote the birth if it does happen or to promote the growth of the microbiome if it does happen to have a cesarean section. But other factors that might be, um, might lay negative impact on that diversity of a neonate's microbiome are things like premature delivery, um, being fed formula milk, or exposure to antibiotics, which can sometimes go hand in hand with a cesarean birth as well. So that's, that's the early day kind of picture of when we're trying to establish a microbiome or healthy microbiome. But as we get older, I guess the things that, um, the first two years of life are really important in establishment of a healthy microbiome. And then it's more about the ratio between our certain phylas that are really important, firmicides and bacteroids, that are really important um, I guess, factors towards disease or health. So if we're looking at negative factors, what is, which is probably the easiest way because we can navigate around those, the negative factors that might impact our microbiome are things like diet, obviously. So a low fiber diet, a high saturated fat diet, and obviously lots of sugars, et cetera, processed diet is not gonna encourage the growth of our beneficial bacteria. Um, age, as we age, unfortunately, um, so does our microbiome. So that is a, that is a factor also. Uh, med certain medications might impact our microbiota, stress, uh, lack of exercise, and the flip side to that is strenuous excessive exercise can, uh, exercise can impact it also. Uh, Travelling, maybe picking up travel bugs, that can be something that has a negative impact. Uh, and just back to diets quickly, obviously alcohol and excessive alcohol can have a negative impact on the gut microbiome, but so can restricted diets. Uh, our diversity of our microbiota can be mirrored by the diversity of our diet. So if we are, you know, if people start say FODMAPs, low FODMAPs or something like that for healing, then that's great. But if we keep going on that diet for years, then we're actually doing injustice to our microbiota. So the, the restricted diets generally will come in. I, I like to call them healing diets and I call them healing diets to my patients so that they understand it's not a forever diet. Um, so I think we have, as practitioners need to be mindful of the length of time that we're putting people on a restrictive diet uh, and what the negative impact of that might be long-term too. So really they're the mainly, it's easier to kind of touch on the negative impacts of them than the positive ones. But the flip side is all the positive, you know, well-rounded diet, regular exercise, no stress, <laughs> travel to safe places. <laughs> you will have a perfect microbiome. <laughs> well, and what I'm hearing from what you're saying is that you know, obviously they're going to be, there's going to be some factors that we, we can't necessarily control, such as, you know, potentially our birth story or, or different things like that. But there are a lot of factors that we can control and, you know, try and balance out those, those good, um, healthy microbiota promoting behaviours, you know, sure. to outweigh the negative. So that's really, really handy. And I just, um, I really enjoy uh, hearing you talk about the, the, the makeup of the microbiome in the webinar as well. And I just think 
it's so incredible that, you know, we've got this array of, of tiny organisms living inside us and, and, and working with us in our internal environment to create and promote either health or disease. So it's, it's just amazing. And I would say even the majority of our, our patients have seen enough probiotic ads and, and understand that we have gut bugs, so to speak. But, uh, you know, I think sometimes they're not quite sure where exactly these uh, bacterial species might be found. I know that as practitioners, we often think that the, the microbiome, we focus on it being in the large intestine. So is this correct? Or do we see bacterial species present in the stomach or small intestine of a healthy person? Yeah, it is, it is correct that majority of our bacterial species are in the large intestine for sure. Um, and I guess that's generally the focus when we're looking at the microbiota, but it's not necessarily 100% true, obviously. So we do see that there are certain phyla, certain bacterial species that live within the stomach, which was thought um, originally to have no species, to just kind of be um, not not conducive to life in a way. Um, but it actually is. We see Firmicutes, Bacteroidetes, Actinobacteria, Fusobacteria and Proteobacteria, as well as some other general um, bacterial genre as well, live within the stomach. I'm not 100%, I'll be upfront, I'm not 100% sure of their role within the stomach, but they are definitely, some have migrated there. Um, and we do see some in the small intestine. You know, it's, it's uh, when we have issues is when we see that small intestinal bacterial overgrowth when they sort of become too big in numbers. So the duodenum, right from jejunum to ileum, we see a change in numbers and we see a change in species as well and type of species as well, which is really important. So uh, the closer we get to the large intestine, the more those, those bacterial species will start to resemble what's in the large intestine, just to be general. Um, but again, once we have an overgrowth of that, overgrowth of that, we can tend to see problems. So yes, they are inhabited, but they are inhabited to much less numbers, and that's how it should be. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you don't want uh, too many or the wrong type of bacteria in your small intestine. That's for sure. So um, now the literature shows us that the health of the microbiome has been connected to lots and lots of different disease states, and I know that I, I talk about this in my own little webinar that I've, I've done connecting infections and, and dysbiosis to autoimmune diseases, but other um, diseases where there's a, a huge connection include diabetes, obesity, Alzheimer's disease, particularly things like mood disorders. Um, and so do you feel that by understanding the role of the microbiome in health and in disease, that this helps uh, us to make those connections in our mind and also potentially point out how we may look at treating patients differently with different health conditions? I really do. Um, well, you and I, Kristen, are both <laughs> path heads. So we, that sounds funny, doesn't it? But we like to work out the pathology. We like to know what's underlying, what's, what's the, or even just the, you know, the process behind why something's involved in a disease and what, what kind of path that disease takes. So for the way my, little nerdy brain works is that I do believe that looking at the processes um, behind the microbiome and its role in health and disease is really important because it allows me to see treatment a little bit clearer um, and also longevity of treatment you know what, what's showing up for a patient and what that process is for that person's microbiota might show weakness or strength right so that's I like to understand that so um, I might just delve into 
some of the processes. Is that okay? Like to talk about, so our listeners might have a bit of a better understanding around um, what I'm talking about at the moment. So when that would be great. (laughs) When we're looking at the microbiome um, and specifically the microbiota, I suppose, in regards to the processes they provide, there's five key um, processes that we talk about or that are in the research. I'm sure there are more. These sort of are grouped into these five processes. And the first one is that the microbiota actually provide us with essential nutrients and bioactive metabolites that we can't get from that starter point. So they are important in allowing us to have essential nutrients that can be absorbed and then be bioactive, you know. Um, And energy regulation, that's another one that the microbiota are really involved in and we see research around diabetes metabolic syndrome fatty liver etc and and the connection of the microbiome there so they have a huge role in our, how we metabolize energy or our energy metabolism via different pathways such as signaling and leptin production etc etc the third one is my favorite which is all around uh, pathogen colonization so basically and I find this really great to be able to talk to patients about too. So the microbiome, microbiota specifically, are involved in um, preventing pathogen colonisation. So whether they do that indirectly or directly by taking up space and food, it doesn't matter. We just know that they're important in colonisation resistance. So, you know, the, the more healthier bacteria we have, then the more space they will take up. Uh, and the less room there is for the bad stuff. So that's a really important part of our health role, of the bodies of the microbiome's health role in general, um, is that colonisation resistance. The fourth one that we talk about is that they sustain the integrity of our mucosal barrier, um, and they're important. They're, they really are a key component of that immune regulation from our gut and from that, that intestinal barrier specifically. And then we also know, finally, that our uh, microbiota can communicate with the central nervous system via the brain-gut axis or brain-gut microbiome axis. So it's a huge in role, role in uh, learning disorders, mood disorders, behavioural disorders. So really, the, any patient you come across now, we're talk, we've talked about metabolic patients, we've talked about inflammatory stuff, we've talked about infection, we're talking about mood, behaviour, anything just um, related to cognitive improvement. Then we also looking at the microbiome. That's pretty much everyone that walks through your door. Yeah. It's just, oh, isn't it just ex- like expansive, you know, because then you start thinking about, well, if you're able to crowd out um, pathogenic infections, how many other um, how many other potential disease states are you preventing by doing that as well? So it's Agreed. just yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Now, Um, That was a bit of a leading question, that last one. So (laughs) I'll try not to do too much of that. But something specifically I was interested in, you mentioned in your webinar that low acomantia species are seen on testing panels, um, such as, you know, when you're looking at stool uh, mapping and things like that, can indicate that mucin or the, the mucus layer in the gastrointestinal tract may need support, which to me makes a lot of sense because, you know, acomantia is a, a mucin-degrading microorganism that transforms mucin into short-chain fatty acids. And we also know that um, acumantia species can be seen in excess or increased levels in certain autoimmune diseases like multiple sclerosis, where they think that um, the it sort of suggests that the acumantia species is trying to compensate for the inflammatory state of the patient. But for those patients with low readings of acumantia species, Um, Would you consider herbal medicines that support and promote the growth of this species 
um, would you consider using herbal medicines to increase the acumantia levels? Like, you know, if you're looking at, um, you know, herbs that have good levels of, of polyphenols or the polysaccharide herbs like cotinopsis and reishi and, and so on. Um, and which sort of, or, or which other herbal medicines would you consider in these instances? Yeah, I have seen some mixed results with regards to acomancia, but majority of the time I am seeing low species and some even un, unregistered. So they haven't even come up in a stool test. Uh, so we've seen some literature around or some research around what might increase or what phytomedicine might increase the Acomantia species. But look, Acomantia is one of the newer members of the family that we've found in research. So I think it's very, very, very early days. Um, so perhaps we can look at what has been shown to promote the growth of Acomantia and extend that a little bit. So we can see that Cotinopsis has been shown to improve it, pomegranate and reishi. So perhaps we can look at um, plants that have a good level of polysaccharides and perhaps they are going to improve the growth of acomantia. So other mushroom species such as uh, cordyceps or lion's mane might also do similar activities. And they're going to be beneficial across the, across the broad um, spectrum of our microbiota anyway. But I also, when I'm thinking of acomantia, I definitely am thinking of the health of the mucosal layer in the intestinal um, epithelium or along the intestinal epithelium. So I'm also thinking about combining those herbs or choosing those herbs that might support that mucus layer, so mucilaginous herbs, thinking about even marshmallow, good old marshmallow, you know, using it in that regards, um, licorice, and then I obviously love burnberry gold and usnea as herbal medicines that modulate the, the those cells and the mucosal layer in the cells. Um, yeah, and the other one, particularly since this research, which we'll probably go into a little bit later, but is things like berberine complaint, um, containing plants and the role that they actually have um, on, on those particular cells and modulating them. So yeah, that, that I'm, there's a few things to marry up. So there's the, the herbs that actually support and produce and increase the numbers of acomantia. And then there's also those herbs that can work as a mucous membrane tonic in a way or modulate those membranes. Yeah. And that's really well explained too, because obviously what you're going to be doing with your herbal prescription is trying to cover the aspects that are needed to cover when you're looking at the whole picture of the microbiota that you've seen, the, the gut health and the general, you know, symptomatology of the person as well. Mm. So um, that's really great. And another thing that I thought was great and was really a key aspect of your presentation, which you mentioned earlier, um, was not only the impact that our, phytomedicines can have on the microbiota, but also the direct impact of the microbiota on our phytomedicines. So thinking about that two-way relationship. And I particularly loved how you talked about how our microbiota can actually improve the synergy of constituents from a prescribed herbal plant part, like a whole plant part rather than a specific constituent on its own, which means that the makeup and health of our microbiota can improve the balance and synergy of how our herbs are working, which is just amazing. So can you um, give us a little taste of this and explain the microbiota's impact on our herbs for us now, just in a little bit of detail? Yeah, yeah. So this is really cool. Um, and the reason why this is really cool is because we might be thinking as, as herbalists and practitioners and going, you know what, I just, honestly, this is the best herbal medicine choice for this particular patient, but they are not responding. And why aren't they responding? Uh, perhaps the big missing link here is actually the health and diversity and richness of their microbiota. 
and that's not actually impacting that herbal medicine enough to be bioactive um, and bioavailable. So really there's three major parts that herbal medicine um, impacts the microbiota and the microbiota impacts the herbal medicine. So firstly, the microbiota biota, sorry, can make bioavailable and improve the bioavailability, sorry, and improve the bioactivity of that herbal medicine. And one example of that is uh, Korean ginseng and all the ginseng species, but let's talk about Korean ginseng. So there's the saponins ginsenicides, which are the major, um, I guess, therapeutically active chemical constituents within Korean ginseng. And the saponin ginsenicide RB1 isn't um, absorbable to, to the therapeutic levels that we see with Korean ginseng as a whole. What actually needs to happen with that saponin is that those ginsenicides are actually metabolized by the microbiota to compound K, and it's compound K, once it's um, absorbed, has all these wonderful therapeutic benefits. Um, so without the microbiota, we don't see that transition um, into a bioavailable and bioactive form of chemical constituents. So that's really cool. And it's a very clear cut example in the research as well. The other thing is that the herbal medicine will have a direct impact on the microbiota. So it will, um, not every single one, but obviously many of them will impact them by being selectively acting antimicrobials. So we are seeing things like the species will increase the like bifidobacterial species, um, lactobacillus species. These will increase by the herbal medicine impacting on that particular microbiota. And finally is the point that you said, which is the microbiota actually improve the synergy of constituents within the um, herbal medicine part itself. So that's kind of cool. You know, when you delve into research and you're delving into one component, so one chemical constituent might be an essential oil, it might be a polysaccharide. Um, it's only a really narrow spectrum, but if we can have a general understanding that the synergy isn't of a herbal mix isn't just based on the herbs we put together, it's also based on the microbiota and the health and diversity of that microbiota. So yeah, our herbal medicines have a huge impact on us as a whole, and a lot of that will stem from the microbiota and the, therefore the efficacy and how um, successful in a way our health medicine treatments are, are is also going to be based on our um, the microbiome as well. Such a fascinating two-way sort of street when you're looking yeah. at it that way. And I just think it is really important to keep in mind, like you said, when you are prescribing and you think you've just got the most perfect prescription for a patient and, and they're not responding appropriately, that is definitely something to check. I always try and keep it in mind, especially when I'm, prescribing and looking for a particular effect from isoflavones, like isoflavonoids. So well, that's actually just to jump, that's actually how this research came about. I remember you and I a few years back now having this discussion going, well, like, you know, this don't don't blame the herb, man. Don't blame the <laughs> herb. <laughs> Let's have a look at this person's microbiome and see whether that's actually playing a role here. Mm. Yeah. And when you see sometimes when you do see mixed results in, in clinical trials and, and you're sort of scratching your head, that is definitely something to consider as well. So it's just sure. great. Great reminder. And um, so let's just continue to dive into the use of, of herbal medicines. So for, for balancing the microbiota in general and um, at Optimal Rx, I'm sure most of our um, regular listeners would know that we often use the terms selective and non-selective when we're discussing our antimicrobial phytomedicines and particularly our uh, herbal antibacterials. So can you explain... Um, to our podcast listeners, what these terms mean, selective and non-selective? Yeah, so 
The selective antimicrobial basically means that it will, that herbal medicine or that constituent will selectively improve the growth of our beneficial bacteria or commensal bacteria, and it will selectively inhibit the growth or kill off those species that have become pathogenic, um, opportunistic bacteria, et cetera. Um, even it, it does extend to parasitic infections, um, viral infections as well, depending on the herbal medicine. So it's, it's, that's why we call it selective. So it's not going to get in there and blanketly wipe out every bacterial species that's in our gut. Um, and so they're the, they're the ones we tend to use most of and we tend to try to reach for initially. The non-selective are those that are a little bit more blanket in their um, inhibition of bacterial species and other species. Um, so they're the ones that we tend to look a little bit more at when we have a certain pathogen that we know is very problematic for this particular patient. Um, and we might reach for them a little bit more in that regards. And it's, the, it's obviously we have systemic um, selective antimicrobials and we have, <laughs> and then we have also systemic non-selective antimicrobials too. So depending on where the infection is, is, is also going to depend on the, the type that um, phytomedicine that we're choosing. Yeah. And we do talk about that quite a bit, you know, trying to make sure that you're choosing a, a herbal medicine that reaches the location of the infection or the imbalance or, or whatever you're trying to support or treat. So yeah. that's mm -hmm. really good too. And I think as a practitioner, the challenge is always with any, you know, herbal, herbal medicine is, is when to use what so like you said earlier we were most of us were educated on the weed seed feed protocol but it's not necessarily always applicable and it doesn't always serve the health of the patient in the long run so with your clinical experience of using selective and non-selective um, phytomedicines uh, specifically when do you sort of use which and when you're using non-selective antimicrobials like because this is this is quite a I guess a controversial area particularly when we're talking about supporting the diversity of the microbiota and I know that we've we've certainly been told that herbs um, containing berberine for instance and some of the high essential oil containing plants that are that are a bit more broadly acting that um, I know that there's a little bit of fear around prescribing these um, sometimes because people are worried that they're going to indiscriminately just blanketly like you said just kill off everything so um when you when you don't want to disrupt the balance of the microbiota um you know i guess when do you what what are you reaching for and then when do you reach for non-selective antimicrobials okay yeah so this is the topic right this is this is this is the meaty one um, with regards to, you know, I, again, I used to, as a graduate, I used to go into the antimicrobials whenever I thought there was a slight imbalance or infection and they were probably in hindsight, the capsules containing non-selective, right? So I'm not sure if that's the right thing now. What I do now is that my patient in terms of their history and what they are presenting with and if I do decide to get a stool sample, that is really what dictates it. But my, what I'm trying to do is treat this microbiome at a, as a whole. So generally that means I'm reaching for selective antimicrobials initially. We have to understand that some of these selectives are, are potently so. You know, they're not, oh, they're just selective, so they're not really going to inhibit any of the pathogenic growth. That's actually incorrect. You look at pomegranate, for instance. You know, you combine that with astragalus and reishi, well, wow. A phenomenal mix you know that can work to modulate 
the beneficial species of our microbiota, but also inhibit the growth of the pathogenic ones. So I would say that probably 70% of my patients now really stick with the selective antimicrobials. And that's, that is enough for us to get really great results. Um, that when I'm reaching for those that might be classed as non-selective, like berberine, as you mentioned, or even high essential oil containing plants, is when that symptom picture, I've started with selectives, we haven't done a stool sample, but we don't get full resolution of symptoms. You know, I've got a patient that's getting more and more sensitive to food, or their, their bloating isn't is, is hit a roadblock, you know? So then we might do a stool sample and we find that there is actually a parasite that's causing a trouble or their lack of diversity with the overgrowth of sev several opportunistic bacteria is actually too much for that system of that person. So we have to go in and use some other um, antimicrobials. So to answer that part of it, I think it's, it's um, symptom driven. If, I, if I'm finding that we're not getting far enough with the selectives, then we actually need to delve into why that's happening. And then we also then possibly, and majority of the time, we're, we're delving into something like using a berberine containing plant or a high essential oil containing plant. Can I just talk about berberine for a little bit? Is I'd love okay? you to. Yes. <laughs> you know, this is one of the this is one of the herbs, or so we're talking mainly coptis and golden seal, obviously. Um, that gets a little bit of a bad rap, and even on my end, you know, I'll put my hand up and say that was me a while ago too, thinking that it's just going to go in and, and like as you mentioned, indiscriminately kill every bacterial species, um, virus parasite worm within our gastrointestinal tract and if you actually look into the research and i'm talking about human research here i'm not just talking about animal research um, it plays a fairly positive role in the modulation of of the microbiome and the microbiota and when we see research around berberine probably the most recent research has been around its use in metabolic disorders so you know, type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome, fatty, um, fatty liver issues, etc. Well, the reason why micro, the berberine is actually important here and is therapeutically active for these people is that it modulates the microbiota. And that modulation of the microbiota actually improves our energy metabolism. So that improves the metabolic changes within the body. So it's, you know, I just think that, well, if we're seeing that shift in, in clinical trials of the microbiome, then perhaps it's actually an important modulator of our microbiome and we can actually use it with a little bit more love um, and a little less fear around what it might do on the microbiota itself. Um, but it's, it is a plant that I, I don't use long term because we have to understand that it is not systemically absorbed. I think it's 1% of berberine is systemically absorbed, right? So it will accumulate in those cells of the um, intestinal tract and within our microbiota. So I, I think that, you know, short-term use of berberine-containing plants isn't a bad idea when, the, when there is an infection or pathogenic overgrowth and we need to use something that possibly might be a little bit more strong hitting. So that's my defence of berberine. <laughs> And very well said. And I think that, you know, by, by using berberine plants uh, short term when they're needed, potentially rotating them with other, you know, potent antimicrobials too, you get the best of both worlds where you, you, do, you don't have to necessarily be worried about, you know, this, this blanket negative effect. And even with the, the high essential oil containing plants, I, in your webinar, you, you mentioned this, that, you know, so a, a lot of that research is done on just the essential oil component right. of the plant, whereas we know that the plants do have other constituents that are, that are having an effect too. So there's probably a bit more to, to both of those um, yeah, classes I agree. of herbs. Yeah. yeah, I agree. Yeah. Time and place. 
<laughs> exactly, exactly. And um, and speaking of, uh, I guess, um, your favourite selectively acting antimicrobial phytomedicines, do you have, besides pomegranate, which we do, we do love for gut infections, or you can talk about that if you like, what other selectively acting antimicrobials do you love to use? Yeah, well, pomegranate is obviously up there, um, <laughs> but that's okay. I'll take that out for now. Um, the other, the other ones I love is astragalus. Um, like I said, I treat, I treat a lot of, um, immune dysregulation. So astragalus as a phytomedicine in general for that population is brilliant. And to understand that it's polysaccharides have, um, a a powerful impact on the microbiome has been, you know, great in my understanding of the plant. And the other ones that I use as, um, selective antimicrobials are the mushrooms dependent on the the patient that's in front of me so it's reishi cordyceps or lion's mane you know they're probably they're probably my favorite that i use and the most regular ones that i use and they're beautiful herbs and i think for a lot of practitioners as well that's probably a new a newer way to look at something like astragalus where they might have just considered it for this you know uh, immunoregulation perhaps or you know maybe as an antiviral but knowing that it you know it does have this amazing selectively acting um, effect on the microbiota is is a great um, way to look at it as well. Mm-hmm. And so when you are prescribing these kind of herbs, do you have any tips for, for the dosing or the timing around um, when patients are taking the selectively acting antimicrobials, like whether it's with food or with probiotics or without or? Yeah, look, not, not really. Um, again, I think this is an inter-individual inter thing as well. Um, some people can handle herbal medicines, particularly these types of herbal medicines um, that I feel are a little bit more gentle on the gut. Um, they can handle them without food. But I will always start someone with food just to make sure there's no irritation in the gut lining and it upsets them. Um, the other thing of, of the research is because I think this selectively acting mechanism behind certain plant constituents has, is, I guess, growing strength within the research is that some researchers are combining these plants with probiotics. Um, so that, that I wouldn't, because of that research, I actually don't think it's a bad idea to combine the two, uh, take them at the same time. Um, I honestly don't, prescribe many probiotics i just think that unless there's a specific situation that warrants the use of a specific strain i'm not using um, probiotics as a general rule i'm wanting to encourage the diversity and richness via other means um, so yeah because of the mixed research around probiotics which i can talk about another day <laughs> so yeah i think if you if you do have someone that warrants a probiotic and you're also giving them a, a mix of selectively acting antimicrobials taking them together may actually be a beneficial thing yeah especially um as you've you know as you discussed that some of the mechanisms by which these herbs uh you know modulate the microbiota is via a prebiotic effect so um you know that that makes sense to me that they would be given with you know sort of yeah. i guess food or probiotics or and so on mm. so um speaking of prebiotics actually as you very well know optimal rx has significantly expanded its glissy tract range this year um and we've been getting such great results with these extracts in um, both of our clinics and the feedback from practitioners has been just fantastic. So can I ask, what are your thoughts around using the glissy tract version of some of these microbiota modulating herbal medicines 
because um, like, do you feel that they could provide an additional benefit due to glycerin's prebiotic activity? I guess that's what I'm asking. Would you reach, when would you reach for them over the hydroethanolic extract? Yeah. So it is a good question and it's not, it's something I've had to think hard about more recently because we've got the Glycetrack range. So we're lucky enough to be able to have this as even of a question, right? So it's not something though that I am reaching for over hydroethanolics um, because yes, they, the glycerin will have its prebiotic effect, but in all honesty, I want the diet to be able to do that. So I guess my, my um, education with my patients is more around here's our prebiotic foods that I want you to have. But what I love about the Glycetrax is that it allows me to treat um, children and different, I guess, categories of people where I'm not comfortable giving the hydroethanolics. So I guess to answer your question, no, I'm not really giving it as a pure prebiotic and then leaning towards the Glycetrax. However, that is a benefit if I wanted to. Um, I'm also leaning on the diet and then just the selectives in general, selective antimicrobials in general. But I think that the really cool thing is that it allows tracks allow me to be able to prescribe to kids and stuff and know that compliance is going to be spot on and understand that their microbiome is going to grow um, even just from taking that, that glycerin as well as a benefit. And often children can be harder to improve their diet and to get a diverse range of fiber rich foods or, you know, those insoluble carbohydrates, etc. So yeah, the, the glycetracks are definitely worth every practitioner having to think about and how they can use them. It's certainly I guess more like a, an added benefit when you I are using so. the, the glissy tract. Yeah. yeah. And with some of the glissy tracts, like the, um, like the pomegranate glissy tract as an example, it's a slightly different um, plant part that we're using. So with, with the mm -hmm. hydroethanolic pomegranate, we've got this, um, you know, thought out combination of both the seed and the rind where we've made a ratio that, that represents the whole fruit. So we're getting this wide variety of benefits and, um, you know, with the rind, much of the the research that we do have available to us on pomegranate's antimicrobial activity has been conducted on the rind. So the fact that the glissy tract is um, just using the rind, then perhaps, you know, if we are using it in, some, in a population like a, a, a child, you know, a children population, we don't necessarily have to worry as much about how much maybe we're giving a lower dose is, I guess, what we're saying, because we've got more of that rind in in that extract so there's definitely um yeah and compliance obviously is a great <laughs> a great additional benefit i've been mixing some of my hydroethanolics with the glissy tracks just for my yeah. super fussy, fussy patients too so it's been great well can i also um just thinking about the types of of patients that we that we see i know that sometimes we have patients who have with I guess we've perhaps successfully helped them resolve their respective gut issues, but um, but we want to set them up for longevity and health. And so for, the, for those patients, could you use these microbiome modulating herbal medicines as part of a long-term management plan to maintain that diversity of the microbiome? Or are you generally doing that through food and, and those lifestyle factors? Yeah, the focus is absolutely on diet and lifestyle because, you know, that is what's going to maintain them in health and happiness long term anyway. So I find, though, that it's not a bad idea. I, so I, I do think that it's safe to use them long term as a quick answer. Um, I don't see any 
any real issues with that, provided we're always cautious with contraindications and what that particular person is going through, like acute illness, et cetera, et cetera. But I do think that the safety around the, these type of phytomedicines is, is actually pretty broad. They're quite safe herbs. Um, but I worry for, pa for patients that it takes a focus away from their diet and lifestyle. So, you know, that I, I might talk to them about these herbs being beneficial in other ways as but in my mind, knowing that they are getting some support on their microbiome level as well. So, um, you know, I, I don't lean on them for long-term use, but I'm probably am using them long-term for other reasons. And then the added benefit on the microbiome is there. Mm. Do you have any favorites that you do use long-term? Look, it's definitely the mushrooms and it's probably astragalus. I know that's nothing brand new, but it, but it is. Other ones that come in here and there would be the panax species, like a, more so American in the types of patients that I'm seeing, American ginseng, and cottonopsis for when people are feeling really flat and low um, and need a lift, need a spleen tonic. That's, that's probably the other one that I bring in here and there. But definitely astragalus and the mushroom species are, are what I use a lot in clinic. You know, we're looking at others like licorice. I use licorice a lot, but I'm using it at a lower dose. It doesn't mean it's not helping. It's absolutely helping, but it's more a synergist and what have you in that mix. Um, or it's specific depending. Kudzu would be specific again. So all of these ones that would meet a different patient symptom, you know, mm -hmm. versus what I would just reach for, um, which are my favorites like the astragalus and the mushrooms. Yeah. And that's exactly, you know, the benefit of, of having a herbal medicine because they have so many multifaceted actions that, you know, depending on why, you, why you're using them long-term, they've still got this added benefit as well. So yeah, that's, well, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And I think turmeric, like, you know, turmeric something that you could take for such a long time, you know, and, and that's, you know, one I might give in a simple because I do want them to take it for a long time. Lion's mane is one I often give as a simple because I want them to take it for a long period of time. Um, and we're not just talking about the microbiota here. We're obviously talking about different issues. So they're safe to do so, um, provided you've taken a good case and you understand all the cautions around them. Hmm. Yeah. And most naturopaths are, you know, checking in on their patients and, and making sure that they're well educated in when to come back and see them if, if something changes or, you know, when they need a, a repeat prescription. So that's really great. So finally, just to kind of wrap up this podcast, I know that you and I could just talk forever. Um, can I ask, do you have any herbal medicine prescribing tips for our practitioners when they are supporting the health and diversity of the microbiome? Yeah, well, the number one is that we are treating the microbiome as a whole. We're not <laughs> treating a pathogen or a couple of pathogens, you know, and working on that level. Um, the microbiome, it's, it's its own organ. We need to treat it like its own organ, you know. So, so let's think about what that stool test is, what those group of symptoms are, and let's treat that as a whole. Um, so with that, my other tip would be that we need to assess the symptoms really clearly in order to kind of work out, do I need to use a selective here or do I need to use a non-selective antimicrobial in this situation? And that's definitely driven my prescription. Um, as I said, I've started with selectives and if I'm, I'm hitting roadblocks or what have you, I'm needing to investigate further. And then I'm probably reaching for the non-selective antimicrobials as well. Um, with the selective antimicrobials, we can use them long-term, but I think the non-selectives are short-term pulsing or rotating uh, phytomedicines and they're quite different in how we use them so selectives i tend to use stick with one or two or three of them for a longer period of time if i'm using non-selectives i'll be rotating them every two to three weeks so if i'm using a high essential oil plant or a berberine containing plant 
then they're being rotated every couple of weeks. Um, but really, they're, they're my main they're my main tips. Don't be afraid of non-selectives, but just know when to use them. You know, embrace the idea of selective antimicrobials for the gut. You know, understand them as a whole herb um, and embrace the use of those. And possibly, I'm hoping that in majority of cases that we see these days, that that is enough because. I know from my clinical experience and what I'm seeing in clinic at the moment is that my patients aren't presenting with a parasite, with a bacterial pathogen. They are presenting with low diversity and low richness. And this is where the opportunistic bacteria take over. I don't want to kill everything off. I want to encourage the growth and the diversity of those uh, commensal bacteria. And that takes time. So that takes our patients understanding what we're trying to do. So the explanation of our treatment is really, really important when we're employing selectives and diet to encourage that. Um, and then every now and then, like I said, we're delving into our handbook of antimicrobials as well. So there, that's my, my takeaway. <laughs> from all of this research and clinical experience. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Julianne. You have definitely been a wealth of information as always. And I'm sure that this podcast and, and even more so your webinar will clear up a lot of questions for many practitioners and give them a lot of confidence in prescribing herbal medicines for the microbiota. So thank you again. And thanks to all our lovely listeners for joining us. Thank you. That was fun. Thanks, Kristen.